Well, this morning we will take a look at Genesis chapter 14. But before we jump on into chapter 14, I'd like for us to go back on into chapter 13, and then we'll read our way on into uh, chapter 14. We'll go ahead and read the whole chapter of chapter 13. Um, This will both serve as a refresher, plus it'll help to keep us on course from a contextual standpoint as well. So Genesis chapter 13, and we'll go ahead and like I said, we'll read through the entire chapter. So starting in verse 1, it says, Then Abram went from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Parasites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen, and between your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the land, in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent, even as far as Sodom. But the the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Okay, so that's what we studied last week. And if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to the teaching available on our website at aloveoutreach.com or iTunes or SoundCloud. You can find it in a couple different places, a few different places. But Chapter 14, verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Armaphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, 
Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zebulim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoor. So that's four kings making war against five kings. And then verse 3, all these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Now, the Salt Sea is the Dead Sea. They are one in the same. It is bordered by Israel on one side and Jordan on the other. It's called the Dead Sea because nothing can live in it due to its saltiness. It's almost ten times saltier than the ocean. Okay? But anyway, this is the place that these kings met for war in that region there. In verse 4, 12 years they served Kedor Laomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. Now, let me just fill in some blanks here, because if you go and you dig deeper on the topic of this war here, you'll find that 12 years prior to this war that took place, Kedor Laomer, the king of Elam, which is Persia, Elam is Persia, had conquered various kingdoms in the plains that were adjacent to the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. Kedor Laomer had conquered all of these kingdoms around there, these kings. And the kings of those conquered kingdoms got to a place where they had had enough of this Kedor Laomer ruling over them, so they rebelled. The ones that were rebelling against Kedor Laomer are the ones listed in verse 2 there. So Kedor Laomer forms alliances with the kings listed in verse 1, and they attack these rebel, rebelling kings of verse 2. Okay? So that's what's taking place here. In the 14, and then in verse 5, In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Astaroth, Karnaim in Suzim, in Ham, the Eman in Sheva, boy, these are hard words to pronounce, aren't they? <laughs> Kirathaim, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Misfat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebulim, and the king of Bela, that is Zohor, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of nations, Armaphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elessar, four kings against five kings. So, to state the obvious, Kedor Laomer was very upset here that these people, these other kings had rebelled. So he basically goes out and he destroyed everything and every king that was in his path on the way to getting to these rebel kings. He's destroying everything. So he's very powerful in, in his alliance that's with him. And finally, the rebel kings that, that had made Kedor Laomer had 
mad, the ones that had made him mad, they joined the battle because, again, he's destroying people along the way. Then these other ones joined the battle, the ones that he was really after anyway. They get into the battle. But Kedur Laomer, the king of Elam or Persia, he, his allies were very, very strong. Like I mentioned, he was very strong, strong kingdom, and all his allies were very strong. And verse 10 says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot. This is where the story gets interesting. They took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So what role the asphalt pits played in the defeat of these rebel kings, we're not really sure, but they probably just made the way treacherous or something here. But nonetheless, the invading armies of Kedor Laomer prevail and they conquer and they walk away with all the spoils. But there's one problem for them. At the moment, they are victorious here, right? And they're strong. But the problem for them was that they captured Abraham's nephew or Abram's nephew, Lot, and his family. And Abram has God on his side and Abram's not going to like this. And he's not going to put up with this. And verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So Abram gets the news here about the effects of this war and what Kedur Laomer and all of his allies are doing and destroying everything. But the key is, is they messed with Lot, his nephew, and his family, right? And, he, and, and Abram has a few allies here as well, we're told in verse 13. Verse 14, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is, in, which is north of Damascus. So now in verse 14 there, Lot is called Abram's brother. But we know that it's his nephew. But the term brother is, is used very loosely in a biblical sense, loosely in, by comparison to the way that we would use the term brother, right? If you turn back to chapter 13 briefly, and you look down at verse 8 of chapter 13, Abram says to Lot, Please, I already read this this morning, but please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Okay? So to refer to Lot as Abram's brother goes very well in the biblical vernacular. They were family is the point here. And we know it was his nephew from everything else we've read thus far up to this point. But Abram is a, a strong man and he's... He's a man of might, and he has the Lord on his side. 
And what we're seeing is he goes out here and he defeats this very strong army of Kedor Omer and all of his allies. And he takes what he wants back, right? And verse 16, back in Genesis 14, it tells us that Abram brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him. Okay, So what's happening here is this, I'll call him a coward king, this king of Sodom, right? He took off running to the mountains along with the king of Gomar. They, they take off hiding when the war comes, right? When it gets too overwhelming for them. They don't stand and fight to the death. They take off. And in the face of, in the face of the battle, they hide in the mountains. Well, the king of Sodom shows up here to Abram. And he's trying to get back some of what he lost to Kedor Laomer. Because Kedor Laomer took it all, but Abram comes and gets it all back. Okay, so now this king comes out and says, hey, you know, let's make a deal here. I'm a coward, but let me have some stuff back. Let me have back my stuff, right? And then somewhat of a mysterious thing happens here now in verse 18 through 20. Well, most call it mysterious. I I really don't think it's all that mysterious, but it's kind of interesting what happens in verse 18. It says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was the priest of, the, of God Most High. So I'm going to expound quite a bit on these verses here about what's taken place here in the life of Abram as it relates to Melchizedek, right, and the king of Sodom. We'll see as we go on in Genesis that Sodom is a place of sin. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Along with its sister city, Gomorrah, that is Sodom, is a, it represents a place of sin. The name Melchizedek is a combination of two words. Those two words are Malki and Sedak. Okay, so it should be Malki Sedak. Okay, Malki and Sedak, two words there. So Malki means king and Sedak means righteousness okay so when you say Melchizedek it means king of righteousness and it is said here that he is also the king of Salem Salem in the Hebrew is the word Shalem and most people pronounce that word Shalom okay Shalom is a word that means peace in Hebrew okay so it says he's the king of Salem, Salem, Shalem, okay? So he's the king of righteousness. This is who is appearing to Abram. The king of righteousness, the king of peace. So after this battle, Melchizedek brings Abram bread and wine. Now, I'll give you a couple theological words here. One of the words is theophany. And that is a word that is used to describe a visible manifestation of God, sometimes human, sometimes not, like the burning bush, okay? like 
when um, Jacob wrestled with the Lord and hurt his hip in the process. Whole nother story we'll get to in Genesis. But this is a theophany, okay, a appearance of God, right? Many, there's many examples of this in the Old Testament. The other word is a Christophany, another the, uh, theological word, Christophany, right? And this is just an, another word that describes a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The word is Christophany, right? And with Melchizedek, I believe, along with many others, that this is what we're seeing here in the life of Abram, the appearance of God to him, the appearance of the Lord God to him. Now, I'll continue to expound on this more as we go on here, and you'll see why, why I believe that this is the appearance of the Lord God to Abram. But the first thing that I want to point out to you is that Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, he brings bread and wine to Abram. In the New Testament, we know that bread and wine are symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is why we use these elements in communion even till this day. And communion was, of course, established by Jesus himself with his disciples because of the bread and because of the wine, because of the body and because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We have overcome sin and we can overcome every temptation that comes our way because of Jesus. We're, we're, we're powerless without ourselves, but because of Jesus, we can overcome temptation. I'm stressing this point for a reason with the life of Abraham. Keep, keep in mind that Melchizedek has appeared to Abram here. Okay? And in a little while, we're going to see that Abram was faced with a temptation here as the king of Sodom comes along. Okay? Again, Sodom being a picture of sin. But then in verse 19, we are told that Melchizedek blesses Abram. It says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. So Abram is a man of God, right? He's the most high God. He's a, a man of the most high God. And God is the possessor of heaven and earth, right? That is who Abram serves. We've known that. We've seen that up until this point. We've seen that he is a man of faith. And these great kings of the earth that went out in battle, destroyed everything in their path, they had no chance against Abram in battle because he was a servant of the Most High God. And God had a will and a plan and a purpose for Abram's life. Okay, And we've been studying that. And Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, he proclaims that it was God Most High that delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. He's telling him it was God that did this. This victory that you have in your life, it was God, right? And verse 20 also tells us that Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Now, many people get confused here because it almost sounds like Melchizedek gives uh, a tithe to Abram, but we'll see from Scripture here in just a little bit that that's not the case. But let's go ahead and look further into this Melchizedek 
um, and the similarities between him and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to mark this page, and I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews toward the back of your Bible. It's between Philemon and James. Philemon's a very small book, easy to miss. It's Philemon, Hebrews, then James. If you hit 1 Peter, you went too far. Turn back a couple books. But we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 7. So we're going to use the New Testament to help us out with something that we're reading in the Old Testament. Remember, you've heard me say, and you'll hear many people say, many Bible teachers will say, use Scripture to interpret Scripture. You know, don't just try and interpret it or come up with some wild thing, you know, out of nowhere. Try to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Verse 1 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. Everybody there? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we see Melchizedek blessed Abraham, right? We saw that in Genesis. Then verse 2 here tells us, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. So there's where we see from Scripture that Abram or Abraham gave the tithe to Melchizedek, and it wasn't the other way around. Then speaking of Melchizedek, verse 2 continues and says, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So to say that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, simply means that he came from the eternal realm. Okay? Which, of course, we know that that is where Jesus came from. John 1.14 tells us that the Word that was there in the beginning that created everything, the Word that was there at the beginning of creation became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus Christ. So where Jesus come from? Eternity, right? When Abram met Melchizedek, he was meeting the Son of God that is a priest continually. Jesus is our priest continually. He is the great high priest. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is ever faithful, ever true, right? And the writer of Hebrews here points out how great this Melchizedek really was. It says in verse 4, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. In other words, Abraham was great. And in the eyes of the Hebrews, who, who the writer of Hebrews here is speaking to, they believe he was the greatest. So he's comparing them, saying, but, but wait a minute, the whole book of Hebrews is about how great Jesus is. If you ever just take and read the book of Hebrews all at one sitting, all the chapters of, what is it, 13 chapters, 12, 13 chapters, 
you'll see it's all about how great Jesus is, how great Jesus is. And he's pointing the Hebrew people to the fact that it is Jesus that is God most high. And it is Jesus that they must worship, right? So he says, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abram gave a tenth of all of the spoils. So Abram, Abraham was a great man of faith that heard and he, he heard God. He spoke with God on many occasions, but Abram tithed to Melchizedek. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling them here. The Hebrews to whom this letter was written, like I said, they thought Abraham was the end-all, be-all. He was the best man on earth, right? But there was one that appeared on the earth, even in Abram's time, that was greater. And that's what this book of Hebrews is all about. Like I said, if you read it from start to finish, that Jesus is the greatest, okay? And you know what? Jesus said himself, this is, this is interesting. Jesus said himself that Abraham saw his dead. Right? Jesus said that Abraham, that lived 2,000 years before Jesus was on the earth, Jesus said Abraham saw him. He said he saw his day. Let me show you. Turn to the New Testament book of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. So I guess you can say this Melchizedek kind of appearing, you can put a lot of mystery and surround it with a lot of mystery, but to me, when you read the Scriptures, and again, you let the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures, and you go to the book of Hebrews, you can fill in a lot of blanks on the mystery, if it's a mystery to you. But in John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8, and looking down at verse 56, just a short verse here, Jesus says, so John 8, 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, I'm not going to go on reading here, but of course they'll challenge Jesus. What? You're not even 50 years old. When did, Abram, when did Abraham see you? Well, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, appeared to Abram after the battle. But that's pretty crazy though, huh? That Jesus says this. So, and I believe that, that when Abram met Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and Melchizedek gave Abram bread and wine, and Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils of his victory, he was meeting the Lord God. That's when Jesus is referring to here, I believe, Abraham saw his day. So let's flip back to Genesis chapter 14. Again, so we're talking about a Christophany or a theophany, an appearance of the Lord God, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus on the earth in the life of Abraham. And back in Genesis chapter 14, um, we see in Genesis chapter 14 that this, again, this coward king of Sodom, who again you can liken Sodom to sin and with worldliness, he comes out of hiding and he comes to Abram. But Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, pops onto the scene and gives bread and wine to Abram. The bread and wine 
is important, and I hope and I, that I can express it to you, because again, again, bread representing the body of Christ and the wine representing the blood of Christ, Abram is seeing Jesus' day, and Jesus is the Savior, our great high priest that has atoned once and for all for all the sin of the world. And Abram, after this great battle, he's comforted with bread and wine that Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, gives to him. And I told you earlier that Abram was, a, was about to be tempted in a way by the king of Sodom. And the bread, the body of Christ, the wine, the blood of Christ keeps us from sin and it takes us away from temptation. And let's read on um, and I'll further explain. But verse 21, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. So like I said earlier, this cowardly king that ran and hid in the face of the battle, is trying to get something back from what he lost. In this case, he wants the people. Verse 22, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Now, this just really just happened right here in Abram's life, didn't it? Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, was just there and Abram raised his hand or paid homage to him. He gave him a tithe, right? He raised his hands to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram is saying to this worldly king that he wants nothing from him. And the lesson for you and me is that we need to pay homage or give all honor to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and Him only are we to give honor to. We don't need what this world has to offer us. You see, Sodom, the king of Sodom, is making an offer to Abram. and saying, hey, let's make a deal. And we don't need what this world offers to us because we serve God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. We have Christ in us. And we are like Abram to be a people who walks by faith and not by sight. We don't want what this world has to offer us. Some trust in chariots, the Psalms say, and some in horses, but we will remember our Lord God, right? Today, people may trust in their jobs, their cars, electricity and water, and all these things we need, but we're not to trust in them. We're to trust in God and His will for our lives, right? And we should pay homage and give honor to the Lord God Most High as we see Abram doing. He is our example of faith. He is our Father in the faith, right? And we today, as born-again believers that walk by faith, are in that sense the children of Abraham. But Abram goes on and he tells the king of Sodom in verse 23 that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre, 
let them take their portion. So we're done with the verses here of Genesis chapter 14, but I'm going to continue on for just a little bit here because there's a lot to learn out of all of this. First of all, Abram says to the king of Sodom that he's not taking nothing from him. Today, as we walk through this temporary, temporary life, we should live in such a manner that displays that we live in a way that godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what 1 Timothy 6, 6 says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. How do we get in trouble in this world when we go beyond that? When we say, well, I have godliness, I'm serving the Lord. He is my king of righteousness. He is my king of peace. I serve him. That's godliness. And I'm content with what he gives me. Jesus said, having food and raiment, clothing and such, therewith be content, right? That's where he wants us. He wants us trusting in him. But instead, many people fall into the trap of taking everything the world has to offer. Like the king of Sodom in this picture here coming and saying, Hey, uh, you can have all this. Well, technically, it all belonged to Abram. He didn't have to give him anything back, right? But Abram said, I don't want anything that you have to offer. And it's like us saying today, I don't need what this world has to offer me because my God provides what I need. He knows what I have need of before I even ask, Scripture says. Right? But he wants us to be content. And he wants us to be a people of faith that are seeking him and realizing that we've already raised our hand to God. We've already paid homage to the Lord. We already, everything that we have, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And anything I have, it all belongs to him. And I want to give glory and honor to him. I don't want what you have to offer, right? So we shouldn't take what this world has to offer. We should desire godliness and live this life in a contented fashion. As I so often say, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Don't strive to be rich. Don't worry about keeping up with the Joneses and such, right? What God provides is sufficient for us. That's where he wants us, to live a life of simplicity and live a life of faith. He knows what, that we have need of things, right? And, and this was the temptation that Abram had faced here to take something from the world and allow for the world to be his source of wealth. But he said, no, I've already raised my hand to God. I've already, I serve the Lord God most high. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. So he's saying everything belongs to him anyway. Why would I need anything that you have? And I don't want you to be able to say, you're the one that made me rich. Because it's God that I serve, right? So do you realize today that God is the source of your wealth. And what you have been given and what you have is sufficient for you, right? And you are to pay homage or to serve and to honor the Lord God Most High and Him only. And remember how last week I pointed out how Abram was humble in his dealings with Lot. Remember how we just even read this morning in... Um, Chapter 13 of Genesis, Abram said, hey, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Take whatever you want, right? So he allowed Lot to choose the direction to go. He was humble because Abram trusted in the Lord God most high. But there in verse 24, we see that Abram was still humble and he was a compassionate man. 
And he cared for the needs of others. So he said, hey, take care of them. I'm not asking for anything from you, but take care of these people that help me. Give them this, right? But you know what strikes me as I read the outcome of this chapter here is that Abram could have made a deal with the king of Sodom to take Lot back from Sodom, his nephew. But remember, Lot had eyes full of lust. He wanted all the the good stuff. You can read that in chapter 13. He lifted his eyes and he saw all the land that was good and he said, I'll take that. It's well watered, it looks good, I'm taking that, right? He had eyes full of lust. He wanted what the world had to offer. And he was living in Sodom. He was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted what the world had to offer. That was his choice. That was the direction that he took. He made his choice to go in the way of the world. Abram went in the way of the Lord God Most High. The way that Lot went would ultimately lead to destruction. And we'll see that as we go along in the book of Genesis. Abram cared for Lot, though. He went to battle for Lot to make sure that Lot and his family was safe. But Lot was a man of the world. He made his bed, so to speak. And today there are people that we love in our lives, people that we might care greatly for, and if they are in trouble, we'll be there for them. We'll go out our way to be there for them, right? But they make their own choices, don't they? And they choose to live in the way they want to live. They've fixed their eyes on this world and the sin of this world, and there's no pulling them out sometimes. Now we know the Holy Spirit can work in their lives, and we don't want to give up on them. Abram didn't give up on Lot. Lot was in trouble. He went after him. But Lot ends up going back to Sodom because that's the choice he made, right? Abram has to to let Lot go in the way that Lot wants to go. Abram couldn't force Lot to, to serve God, to serve the Lord God Most High because Lot's eyes were focused on the world. Abram, his eyes were focused on the Lord. Now, destruction, we know, lies ahead for Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, like I said, he returns there. And we'll see later on that Abram will again go to bat for Lot. He's going to again plead to the Lord on behalf of Lot. Before Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed, Abram's going to plead to God to spare some people there. Right? Because, again, it's one thing to love your family. It's one thing to to go to bat for them, but they make their choice. They make their bed, they're going to sleep in it, and it might lead to their destruction if they don't repent and turn away from it and get out of there, right? So don't give up on the loss because the work of the Holy Spirit, our God, is still mighty to save. And we have a high priest in Jesus that lives forever to make intercession for us. We can cast all of our cares upon Him. We can pray for our loved ones. But we must not lose focus of the fact that this world has nothing for us. Don't take the deals of this world. Don't take the offers of this world. Trust in the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. We are not our own today. We have been bought with a price. What was the price? The body and the blood of Jesus Christ has purchased us and redeem us, right? Like that old song says, you can have all this world, 
just give me Jesus, right? So if today your life is focused in this way, well, then you've heard this teaching for a reason, right? Abram saw the Lord's day, and you too see the Lord, but you must resist the offers of the world to bring you your wealth. You must ignore all that this world offers you and say, God, what's your will? What's your plan? Just give me what I need. I'll just be content with a life of godliness. And you give me all that I need, right? Jesus said we cannot serve two masters. He said for you will either hate the one and love the other or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Abram is an example to us here this morning of shunning the world and what it has to offer and honoring the Lord instead and what he has and what his will is. Okay? So what do we choose today? I believe that each and every day, personally for myself, I believe that each and every day I have to take up the cross. Meaning I have to die to myself on a daily basis because my flesh wants to run the day when I wake up every morning. And my flesh can get all weirded out, right? I can go in this direction. I can make choices to be this type of person, a nasty person, or, or fly off the handle, or do this or that, because I'm still here in the flesh. But I believe that on a daily basis, I've got to die to myself and realize that this is the day that the Lord has made. In other words, this is my only day. Tomorrow, yesterday is gone. I can never get that back, right? Tomorrow, I am not promised. I might die today. Today might be my last day of life on the earth. So then, if that's the truth, then this is the only day I have. So today, I have to choose that I'm going to serve the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace, Jesus Christ, the one who has bought and paid for me. And today, I'm going to have to say no to the world and what it will offer me today. And all around us, again, and you've heard me make mention to this in recent weeks, that our world is changing. That our world is making laws and decisions and doing things that are contrary to the Word of God. And it's a hard choice. But we must make the choice that says, I don't go in the way of the world. I'm saying no to the King of Sodom. I'm saying no to the world and what it has to offer. And I'm raising my hand and I'm paying homage and I'm giving honor to the Lord God Most High. And this is what His Word says and this is what I stand upon. So this is how I will live. So all throughout the Bible, the Bible says, the Scriptures say that the Old Testament is written for our learning, right? And do you see how we can go back in here and read in the Old Testament and learn from it? And say, well, this is the example of our faith is a man like Abraham, a man who had to rely fully upon God. And when the world was offered to him, he said no. He learned and he continued to grow in the knowledge of the Lord God. And that's where we are, each one of us today. Just simply passing through and today is all we have. And we've got to trust in the Lord with all of our heart with all of our soul, with all of our might, right? Lean not on our, on our own understanding. Love God above all else. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of really belaboring this point because more and more as time goes by, the world's going to be offering you things. It's going to say, 
Well, here, you'll accept this, won't you? We are, we're already seeing it in our laws today, right? Here, you'll accept this, won't you? This is okay, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's okay. Oh, you'll accept this, won't you? That's okay. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Before you know it, you're totally, you're living in Sodom and Gomorrah like Lot, and you're far away from the Lord. Okay? So tr- serving the Lord and trusting in the Lord means a lot of no answers in your life. I'm saying no to that, no to that, no to that, no to that. But that life's boring. I don't care. No to that, no to that, no to that. I'm saying yes to the Lord. And I'm doing what He wants me to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we have this opportunity to gather together. Thank You that it is Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that teaches us. And I just pray for each one of us as individuals here, Lord, that we will just continue to seek you, even as we sung today, Lord. The more we seek you, the more we'll find you. That is your will for our lives, Lord, that we would seek you. In other words, that that we would desire to know you, that we would put effort into knowing you, that we would put effort into serving you, Lord. And again, we can't just accept the world around us. We can't accept the offers of this world, the offers of Sodom and Gomorrah, for us to conform in that way, Lord. Your word tells us not to conform to this world. In Romans chapter 12, it says, but to be transformed. So we are to be transformed people. We have been transformed by the renewing of our minds. Maybe we've grown up in a world all of our lives where we've been taught something and our minds have become accustomed to something. And it seems like the norm. But then we get in your word and we see it's not. That we see that your word says something completely different. What do we do? We need to be transformed. We need to renew our minds. And we need to seek you more. Whatever that seeking may require. But Lord, thank you for the work that you have begun in us, Lord. And, And in this room... Just each individual represents a work, Lord, a work that you have begun and a work that you will be faithful to complete. But I pray that we will not turn to the left or turn to the right, but that we will fix our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And you are the great high priest, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name.